As I read this, I thought, yeah, how silly. How silly these people are. How, how blind and misled and obviously deceived they could be. To somehow think that if, if they did this on the surface level, but they were doing this on the underneath, at the core of their lives, that that, that would still somehow be okay with God, that, that, that they could hold him to that kind of a, of a promise when they were so reneging on their own promises. How silly, right? And, and I hope that you kind of have that initial reaction. How, how crazy. I mean, I, even as I was reading it again to us this morning, I was thinking, all these people out here got to be thinking, this is just craziness. Why would anybody ever do this? Man, when we read it, and when we think about it, and we watch skits like the one that we had here, and we think about our own lives, we just recognize how easily this stuff creeps into our lives. How easy it is to live a surface level or empty religion. And to place our trust in that. How, how many folks have done this throughout the centuries, and how many folks, even in this room, across our own community, are doing this even today. It's not about just religious activity. It's not about this, these kinds of behaviors. But it's trusting in a relationship with God, a relationship of obedience and listening and learning and relating with him. Another issue was this. You go to the next one now, Peter. Another issue was this that, that came up clearly, a, a misdirected loyalty. False gods, worshiping false gods. And this... This is just kind of a natural uh, thing that would rise out of the first problem. If we're not living in relationship, if we're not seeing the value of that, all we're doing is this empty religious behavior, then before long, our practices or this, this living relationship is going to be dead and we'll just be looking to tie in and connect and worship and give our allegiance to whatever the kind of the God of the culture, the God of the moment might be. And so the Babylonians were coming in and influencing heavily in, in Judah and Israel, and so, so they've got a bunch of gods. And so why don't we just kind of pick one of those, kind of add it to our... We don't have to necessarily get rid of ours. It's, it's what's known as syncretism. You might just write that word down, S-Y-N-C-R-E. T-I-S-M, syncretism. It's a, it's a wonderful world, word to know because it's a terrible word to live. It's the mixing and the blending, the adding on of religious worship, idol worship, blending of religious traditions and faiths. And it is prevalent in our culture today. I, my nickname for syncretism is kind of the, the religious buffet. You know, the religious buffet line. I'll take a little bit of that because that works for me. I'll take some of that because that makes me feel good. I'll take some of that because that'll make me rich. <laughs> and I'll take some of that. You know, it's just this blending, this picking and choosing. And this is what the folks were starting to do. Look at this passage. You don't have to stand for this one. Let me read this to you. Down in verse... 21, I believe. Actually, in 16. I'm not going to go to 21 yet. 16. Let me read this. So do not pray for this people. This is God talking to Jeremiah. Do not pray for this people, 
nor offer any plea or petition for them. What does that signify to you if, if God is telling his prophet not to pray for the people that he is speaking to? Anybody? What does that signify to you? God is not happy. <laughs> God is not happy at this point. This is, uh, this is getting ugly. Do not pray. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do, not, do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven, a nickname for the, the fertility goddess of the Babylonian people. We're, we're just making offerings for the fertility goddess because we need our crops to do good. We need some more... We need some more greater population. We need, these, we need the fertility goddess to be on our side. So let's, let's try her out. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Listen to this, verse 19. But am I the one there provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Flip over. You have your Bible. It's in chapter 10. He talks more about the idols. You'll, get, you'll read this whole thing in your, in, during the week and in your growth groups. But just this one part that I just thought was so uh, descriptive, I could not help but read it out loud for us. Verses 3 through 5 in chapter 10. It says, For the customs of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter like a scarecrow in a melon patch. That awesome? I mean, this is. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. These are the false gods that, that the people of Israel, God's people, were, were struggling with in that day. And their unfaithfulness, again, had grown so extreme that God wouldn't even allow his prophet to pray for them. And he said, if you do, I'm not going to listen anyway. In this, this poetic language, emphasizing the significance and the seriousness of this matter from God's perspective. Again, the context, this living God who had guided their forefathers out of slavery, out of Egypt, into promised land, into this place, given them the covenant, had been their God and their guide, was now in a sense, being traded in for a cheap substitute. I love it when I, I, when I was in high school, I probably told some of you the story, but it, it's, it still lives on. But when I was in high school, I took a trip and over, overseas, and I, you know, we have like um, laws against this kind of stuff in the United States, but overseas, not so much. And we're walking around, and we're seeing all sorts of electronics and, you know, different things where we were, and there's like the Somi brand, you know, not Sony, but Somi, or, you know, you got, hip, you know, Hibachi instead of Hitachi, or, you know, I mean, just, just slight changes in the name, right? But the reality is, is that this is a, a cheap imitation, and I mean, I'm all about you know, knockoffs and no-name brands. and Nothing wrong with that when we're buying some of these things that we, 
have to use in the world. But when we're talking about a relationship with a God who we worship, uh, when, we, when we replace the real thing for a cheap substitute, we are in real danger. And I'm afraid that many of us do this with great regularity without perhaps even being aware of it. Again, Jeremiah's time, like our own, the critical faith issue or concern was not necessarily atheism. I mean, atheism is making a real comeback in our day, right? And probably many of you have some atheist friends and family members, perhaps, and there's lots of writing and lots of discussion, but still the percentage of atheists is minuscule in, in our country and, and even in our world. So it, it, it's a big flash, but it's really not that huge of, a, of an issue right now. Don't be you know, overwhelmed by what you read and what you hear. The real problem is not atheism, it's idolatry. Right? The, the real pro- because idolatry is subtle. Idolatry is sneaky. Idolatry catches us unaware. And we can go for a long time with idolatrous practices before it grabs us and before we come to a place where we've gone too far. And this is what Jeremiah is saying to the people. You're slipping away. The time is coming. It's, you're on the precipice of real disaster here. You're fooling around with these gods. If you read those first chapters, verses 1 through 6, all sorts of adulterous just kind of language and metaphor going on here. You're fooling around with these other gods. You're cheating on your husband, this one who has brought you and, and worked with you and been your faithful guide. And the time is coming when he will put up with it no longer. Misdirected loyalty, false gods, the problem of idolatry. I wrote in my notes here, I don't know if I plan to say this, but I'll go ahead and say it. They were ticking God off. But then there's this ending part that I just needed to note from that little verse there, this ending part where God says it um, there in verse uh, 19. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? They're, They're ticking him off, absolutely. Don't pray for him even, Jeremiah. But then he finishes that little segment by saying, are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? I read that, I was just reminded that in the end, when we, when we offer ourselves to other little G gods, as we like to call them, when we offer ourselves to little G gods all around us, whether that's materialism or whether that's entertainments or whether that's relationships, or whatever that might be that we offer ourselves to, that we give ourselves to, and we do it all the time, we are, we are deeply offending God. Don't, don't be mistaken. We are deeply offending God, and we need to feel the hurt and the pain of that, you guys. But ultimately, what he's saying here is that you know, he's God. And he's big enough to handle that. Ultimately, the ones who are losing out, the ones who are digging our own graves, in a sense, is us. When we lose sight of the true and living God. Um, what are the idols that you serve? I uh, thought about this. What are the idols that we serve as the church in America? Influence, size, p- 
popularity? What is, this is my question for you, what is the worship of false gods doing to us as people? I couldn't put my finger on it completely, but I just, it's, it's having its effect on us. What is the worship of false gods doing to us? It is harming us. He says it. It is breaking us down. And so we move in new directions. Here's the last one. Missed opportunities. The, the, the last thing that was really leading to this, uh, that I'm going to note here anyway, that was really leading to this breakdown, this, these broken promises, missed opportunities. And, and the word there, you might not be able to see, just says stubborn hearts. Again, can't really read this. You for sure can't preach it without it just kind of drilling down into your heart, into your life. But over and over into this section, over and over in this section, in these chapters, 7 through 10 especially, Jeremiah talks about the stubborn hearts, stubbornness of his people. And sometimes we, we joke about stubbornness, right? We even kind of celebrate it sometimes as a character, characteristic of our lives. Oh, I'm just stubborn. Oh, he, she's stubborn. That's just how she is, you know. And, and, and at some levels, this is okay. This is fun. And this is, you know, this is just your personality. I'm sure there's a strength that we could note at this point that would make being stubborn sound like a good thing, right? Um, and, and at some levels, it probably is. But when we begin to talk about stubborn response to the, to the availability, to the offering of God to us in relationship to his continual call upon us to lay aside the empty religious practices and the false gods that so pervade us and to enter into living, obedient relationship with him, then again, this is no joking matter. Serious business. So verse 21 says it like this. This is what the Lord Almighty, God of Israel says, go ahead Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. Basically just saying, you know what? These sacrifices are just not doing it. Just go ahead and have a barbecue because it's not working. It's empty. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. Did you notice there? It doesn't say walk in all the ways I command you so that you might have a miserable life. Walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, Day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. I, this stubbornness would not, was not only just keeping them in one place. It was, it was making them worse. Again, the picturesque language here. You're walking backwards, not forwards. You're sinning worse than your forefathers. This is, this is, getting, this is getting worse. Stubborn of our hearts. The, um, again, it's asserted here and those all that language about sacrifice and 
they had it part right. He, he said it like this. God said, I gave, you know, I, I didn't just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifice. They had it part right. And how often we get it part right. But God's get it, calling us to get it, to get it all right. The, the, the invitation, again, is to whatever that, that, that pride, that deceit that we've experienced, that ego, that selfishness, whatever it is that feeds our stubbornness toward God, that sense that you have when, when you hear the voice of God, however you might hear that, inviting you into relationship or inviting you into ministry, and you simply say, not me, not today. Maybe later, I'll think about it. And what it is is it's stubbornness. Whatever it is that's leading to that stubbornness in our relationship and our response to God, the invitation is to, is to, is to sacrifice that. Love the skit. To sacrifice that so that our stubborn hearts might become soft and open and vulnerable. I can't tell you how many conversations I've been having with people lately about this very topic. Maybe some of you, I've had conversations with you about this. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people about just this very idea of what God can do with a soft and accessible and willing heart. Just something about living with a closed fist Versus living with an open hand, right? Does that make a little sense to you? I don't know what that might look like in your life, a closed fist kind of life. But to me, it suggests self-centeredness and holding on to my own way and grabbing for what I can get. And living with an open hand simply, to me, says, God, fill it, lead me, call me, whatever you want to do with my life. I'm ready to respond. Well, over in chapter 8, one more little section that I just want to read for you. Then we'll be wrapping it up. Actually, I've got one more verse after this one, but you got to hear this. Verse 4 in chapter 8. Um, my friend Eli Knapp, some of you guys remember Eli. He was here this week, and uh, he is a birder. You know what a birder is? Yeah. I got, some, anyway, I got some other birders in the house just like to look at birds. And uh, they, they love to just, and I forgot that terminology as well. And he was like, oh, just, what'd you do today? You like, oh, a little birding. So just went out birding. And so as he was here this week, I was reading this, and he gave me some insights. But, but listen to this. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When men fall down, do they not get up? When a man turns away, does he not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? Listen to this description. They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? What have I done? Didn't you just hear it in yourself? <laughs> Each pursues his own course, like a horse charging into battle. And this verse is for the birders. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons. Probably a European stork, according to Eli, and definitely the migratory patterns are well known. And the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. 
my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? No one is aware and open to the fact that maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I'm off base a little bit here. To quote Thomas Cramwell, a great Cramner, a, a man from 17th century Britain in the House of Parliament, he rose to his feet and he said, I beseech you gentlemen by the bowels of Christ, admit ye may be wrong. I read that quote almost every day. <laughs> I want to leave you a little hope because it's filled with hope. Chapter 9, flip over to verse 23. Amidst all of this warning, amidst all of this harsh word, I love the fact that with these verses, these words from God, He doesn't leave us hanging. Our God, do you know this? Let me just affirm this. God, God does not tell us, as many of us parents do, tell our kids how bad they are without giving them some idea about how to be good, about how to do it the right way. He does not kind of say, well, you're, you're destined for destruction. Throughout this passage, He's given some sense of if you'll do this, if you go this move, if you'll go in that direction. And I think it's most beautifully captured in these verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Read it with me, would you? Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Let him who boasts, let her who boasts, boast about this, that you understand and you know me, says the Lord. That I'm a God who exercises kindness, justiceness, justice, and righteousness. It's in these that I delight. This is uh, not only what we're invited to know about; it's invited what we're. It's what we're invited to live out: justice, kindness, and righteousness. Let's stand together, can we? Pray for you, God. Thank you so much for this word, even though it's a harsh word. We're thankful for it. And we're thankful even right now. I, I know I am in my own life. and Thankful for this word that comes to us as a body of Christ, as a corporate community, for the message that it speaks to us, and, and for the, the wake-up call in many ways that it is. The, the reminder of the ways that we have just kind of uh, fallen victim to the clutches of empty religious activity. This, this just numbing, spirit-deadening activity 
and life that we as even good American people can so easily fall into. But we're trusting in something other than you for our provision. We're, we're sorry, oh God. We, we just confess the idols that we have erected in our own lives. Your word talks about how they, they brought them right into the temple and just set them up right there. We're, we're so sorry that in our lives where, we've, where we vocalize, where we said out loud in our hearts that we want to follow you, and then we've allowed these other idols to creep in and stand right next to you and sometimes even to rise above you. We're sorry, oh God, for the opportunities that we've missed in the past because of our stubbornness and because of our hard-heartedness. We're sorry for the, the obedience that we've failed to live out when we know you've spoken to us because of our pride or our ego or our self-centeredness. But we're thankful, oh God, in the end, that you're a God of kindness and of justice and of righteousness. And for all the opportunities that we still have as we put our faith in you to live into that life. So go with us from this place. With your blessing on our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.